And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a fantastic hour. Dr. Stephen Arterburn is going to be joining me. It's the 20th anniversary of his book, Every Man's Battle, Winning the War on Sexual Temptation, um, One Victory at a Time. And I know that this discussion with uh, him is going to be a little more on the adult side. So if you've got younger ears, you're going to want to maybe listen to the podcast when you can put in uh, headphones. So that would be what I would encourage you to do. Um, And then we're going to talk to Lori Polish later in the hour as well. So that's what's coming up in this hour. And again, if you have uh, made time great for the March 26th event, and if you've not, go to MyFaithRadio.com, get a seat. You're going to love being here for a live taping of the show. So let me take 60 seconds and then bring on Dr. Stephen Arterburn. Welcome back to the show. My guest, Dr. Stephen Arterburn, has written a book called Every Man's Battle, Winning the War on Sexual Temptation. Again, uh, probably not a discussion for younger ears, but oh, you are, of course, can listen to the podcast. It'll be up right after the show. Um, this book came out 20 years, so we have an anniversary, 20th anniversary copy in our hands. It's been revised and updated. And I think since he wrote this book, there has been um, more need for it than ever before. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, and um, always great to be with you. And yeah, I would say um, it's not going away. It has only gotten worse. I think we're living in a world now where there's more images that men are confronted with daily in in every area of life. I think that's true. And so rather than with those images, um, argue to yourself, well, you know, this really isn't pornography, I think uh, here's the real issue and the real question. The question is, is it pure? Because, you know, that's really the standard for our minds and what goes in there is a a purity standard. And so um, if you're not looking at things that honor God, honor yourself, honor your wife, then, you know, you need to stop and, and then you need to start building some character there, and if you can't stop, then wow, that's a that's a great indication that you need to get some help, and yeah. um, help can change your life forever. Yeah, so it's been 20 years since you first wrote this book, and I know there's been quite a bit of uh, work that's come out on uh, the impact that um, this has on the brain, and I know you've yeah. got some things to say about just the brain's impact on our sexuality. Well, that's true. And here's the dilemma, you know, um, none of us knew what smoking was going to do to people when everybody started advertising smoking on on television. You know, you had stars, you even had some doctors saying, well, maybe it'll help your lungs. But then the research came in, and um, now there's just no question that smoking is a problem. And, and we, so we've got the science. Well, um when pornography started out, I mean, it proliferated with Hugh Hefner, 1953, first uh, Playboy. Uh, we called it soft pornography. We didn't really know what that was going to do to a person. But now the, the, the brain science is in, and it really does uh, kind of create some pathways in the brain, and then it 
does some things to a guy emotionally and relationally that we had no, no idea of. For instance, they they expose some guys uh, to pornography. It, it was not easy to find guys that had never been a part or ever looked at pornography, and they got them to look at pornography for three weeks. The things that that did in just three weeks, they were about half as um, supportive of equal rights for women. Uh, they were about half as likely to want a female child. Um, all sorts of changes like this happened when they began to objectify women, and that's really what pornography does. But there's something else that we discovered, uh, well, the researchers discovered, that I, I just think it's kind of earth-shattering. You know, a guy that's using pornography doesn't understand why is it that I went from loving my wife uh, to now I can't stand to be around her. Well, you know, um, there's a bonding hormone called oxytocin, and that hormone is released uh, when a mother nurses her baby. She gets bonded to the baby, and and then she's also very aggressive toward anything that might threaten the life uh, of what she's bonded to. And so she'd go out and fight saber-toothed tigers. Well, when you have a sexual experience, there's also the release of oxytocin in the brain, and it's a bonding hormone. It's pretty cool the way God did that. But when a man has an experience with pornography, he bonds with the pornography, and he is aggressive toward his wife. It's almost like double damage there. You want to be with your pornography, protect that, and you will be aggressive toward the wife that you loved and you chose to be your wife forever. And so that's why there's a tremendous amount of difficulty in being intimate with a real live woman and a an extreme desire to continue to increase the intensity, uh, really the sickness level of pornography to try to increase the high. So a lot of this stuff we didn't know about when we first put out Every Man's Battle, but a lot of mysteries are solved when people understand the science behind pornography and what it really does to people. And Stephen, the way the brain uh, is affected, the difference between like a uh, Playboy magazine and then a high-speed internet, uh, it it changes the way a man's brain is going to be processing this. And for younger kids who might be looking at their first images by the time they're 9 or 10, uh, it is horribly destructive. Yeah, I mean, just too much time on screens is destructive. But when it is the intensity level, and what we've seen guys doing is going from video to video and and, uh, you know, it, it literally, well, there was a cover story of Time magazine of all these teenage guys deciding not to use pornography. Now, that wasn't because they had found Christ, which that would have been great, but it, it was because they discovered they were not able to be sexual with their girlfriends. That's what pornography did to them. And so they said, well, that we have to stop this if we're going to be real, quote-unquote, men with our girlfriends. So that's one of the impacts here is pornography really neuters you. And, of course, Hugh Hefner was trying to convince everybody it was the greatest thing ever. Well, it wasn't great for Hugh 
if you read some of the stories about him and uh, after he died and the women that had been with him. So there's just nothing good about it. It's a counterfeit. Satan loves it to get us dependent on it and addicted to it in whatever way possible. And so we need to do whatever we can to stop it, to get it out of our lives. And, you know, I think this book has probably helped more people, 4 million in the series. I think it's helped more people than any other book in this area. And then we do a workshop called Every Man's Battle Workshop, and we're seeing literally thousands of guys who didn't know how bad it was, but maybe somebody said, you need to go get this taken care of. They find victory and freedom and become the men I think they've always wanted to be, and certainly the men that their uh, their wives have been looking for and the men they hope that their, their husbands would be. Mm-hmm. Dr. Stephen Arterburn is my guest, and his book is Every Man's Battle, now in its 20th uh, anniversary edition, which just is out, and we're excited to uh, have him on the studio line today. If you have a question, I could probably get it in after the break. It'd be a text only, and of course you can remain anonymous, 877-933-2484, 877-93-FAITH. We'll be right back. Stephen Arterburn is my guest. His book is Every Man's Battle, Winning the War on Sexual Temptation. This conversation might be a little uh, spicier than what you're used to, so just be aware that if you've got younger ears, there might be, might be some words that would pop up that you don't hear all the time on Faith Radio. Um, Stephen, I would just be curious. It's not just a problem for men anymore. It's also become a problem for women. Is there, uh, is there something that women can get out of this book as well? Well, it's... Um it's a great question. My wife actually facilitates um, a group that, you know, 20 years ago you'd think only uh, women, I mean, only men would be involved with, but she, but she does a group for women with sexual integrity problems. And, of course, uh, nowadays they are uh, using pornography. They can get just as hooked and uh, distorted from it as a man. And and so if a woman reads it, well, many women read it, and they do it for two reasons. Uh, they've been struggling themselves, and it helps in that way. But also it helps them understand uh, how in the world did I marry this guy uh, that has betrayed me in this way, provided great insight. And it's really wonderful when a mother or father go over this with a uh, a young daughter who's about to date or is dating already, uh, to provide some insight into, you know, how a man thinks. But I, I think, you know, the the bi- the blessing of this is just this belief that, you know, if I, if I don't help people uh, find a way out of the problem and all I do is talk about the problem, then all I'm doing is increasing the shame in their life. And, of course, shame just shuts you down. And I'm here to say that this, this book became so popular because it it gave you a way out, and you know it was the uh, it started with you know starving your eyes from all of these images, looking away or bouncing the eyes, and then uh, discovering the wonder of your wife, or if you're single, uh, developing a more intimate relationship uh, 
with God to prepare yourself either because you've been called to be single or one day you will be married. So there's tremendous amount of hope and transformation here. But first, you've got to be able to see that I've got a problem. And of course, you don't want to admit that it's beyond you. You Maybe you want to uh, act like, well, I'll just pray more, read the Bible more, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't have to admit this to anybody. But you really do uh, need to reach out to somebody and open up. You know, James 5.16 is so clear that if we confess our sins to one another and pray for each other, that's where we're going to find healing. And uh, so if you think, uh, you know, that Jesus is a big on just you, God, and the Bible, well, you're you're not reading the same Bible that I read because we really do need to connect with each other, humble down, and that's where uh, the possibility for freedom really starts is when you connect with somebody else. Well, Stephen, in your book, you made a really nice list, you know, that verse that says there shouldn't even be among you a hint of sexual immorality, no. and you right. put together a really interesting list of uh, things you can check yourself on. Um, so I'll just give a couple of examples. Do you yeah. surf the channels or Internet hoping to catch a glimpse of something hot and racy? Um, do you lust over the lingerie ads in print or online? I mean, are you looking for little opportunities to go, well, this isn't porn, but I'm going to let my eyes feast on that? Yes, and, you know, again, um, to ask yourself, is it a hint? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other question for me um, is, is it pure? Uh, if it's a hint, then it's not pure. It's not um, the standard. And, you know, Job, he was so great. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon the young women of the day. What a, what a great thing. And he said, I will look neither to the left uh, nor to the right. I'll, I'll move forward. And so there's so many uh, encouraging ways that we can move toward doing that very thing. But first, we have to you know, see that we have a problem. And the sad thing is, is that some of the people that I'm talking to are listening to this right now are, um, well, you're blind to it. You're, you don't see it, um, and you can't. You know, maybe you're deaf to it. And um, I just hope that that's not the case for anybody because uh, I want to see men step up, man up, humble down, and get this taken uh, care of because uh, it's your life, it's your future, it's your relationship with God. And Satan rejoices in anything that gets you away from what draws you closer to the Lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephen, when you think of the way men and women are wired so differently, and if there's someone listening today that goes, "Uh uh-oh, okay, now I need to go home and tell my wife I've had these thoughts, uh, is that the right first step to take, or is there a better way to process it with other men first? What uh, what should be the steps you should take? Well, when somebody comes uh, to every man's battle, uh, one of the things that does result is, um, you know, talking about it to your wife and, and disclosing things. Um, and, and when you do that, your best day becomes her worst day many mm-hmm. times. And it's hard to understand, but many women feel that pornography uh, is is worse than a real person. I mean, it they, it is not just 
oh, it's not that bad to a woman who's being betrayed in this way. So, but when when that happens, I really believe in a lot of cases it needs to happen with a, a pastor or a Christian counselor that can, you know, maybe meet with you a couple of times and get the feel for the relationship, and then let him guide uh, in in explaining all the stuff that's there. Versus, you know, you just come home and and dump all this on somebody because we want to see this marriage restored. We don't want to cause additional problems. And a lot of guys will say, well, I know if I tell her, uh, she's going to divorce me. Well, uh, that could be true, but probably not. If you handle it well, uh, then you're letting her know, putting her, uh, giving her the information that she needs to have if, you know, if this is going to be successful for you. She's entitled to that information. Um, so, I hope and pray uh, that you won't just jump into that, the confession thing, and maybe uh, cause more damage than normal. But you can lead to that with some wisdom and discretion, especially when there's a third party involved. Mm -hmm. Stephen, in your book, you talk about the war against lust is to build a three-layered defense perimeter into your life with your eyes, in your mind, and in your heart. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, uh, we have to bounce our eyes. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. the, the mind, you know, uh, Romans twelve two says we can literally transform our lives by changing the way that we think. That's the way it reads in the New Living Translation. And so we want to change the way we think, and so we need to be putting God's truth. You know, you take the foundation of truth and combine that with the standard of purity, you start to change the way you think. And and here's the thing. We live in a world where feelings are so important to people. You know, your feelings have a point, but they're not the point. The point is God's truth. And and the more truth you can get in there. I mean, I, I created a Bible, uh, every man's Bible. It's the best-selling men's study Bible. Get that Bible and get some truth into you. Study it. But then the third thing is your heart. And, you know, if you are married, that heart, um, it needs to love God, and it also needs to love your spouse second, and Jesus said second but equal <laughs> to, to love your neighbor, love God and love your, love your neighbor, secondly love your neighbor, but equal to loving God. So that's where we really need to see a heart that is for God, and it plays out in this sacrificial love uh, for your spouse or the person you're dating or respect for the person that you're going to date, or just the women in your life uh, that need to see a man who is comfortable with himself and has healthy respect, not objectification of a woman. And objectification, you start treating women like things, like objects, start believing they're there for your gratification, and you miss the joy of a great relationship with the the amazing uh, female gender uh, that God has created and she, and she's kind of like the the crown of creation and uh, and we miss that so often because pornography has seeped in and we've dehumanized and we've we've really uh, depersonified the woman and created her into just an object for pleasure. Very, yeah. very sad. Stephen, I had a listener jump in with, why does the Bible make special note of a woman being beautiful? 
Well, because we're to be uh, attracted, I think a man can be handsome too. But when I look at my wife, she's extremely beautiful. Um, I can either see that one-dimensionally, or I can see that as the the cover of something even greater inside. And when we are able to take the objectification away from a woman, uh, a lot more women become beautiful to us than just what you might see in a fashion magazine or on television or in a movie. That's kind of fake beauty. Right. But a, a woman's beauty, the essence of the woman, uh, you can miss that if you think beauty is a an 18-year-old uh, image coming out of a magazine or a video that looks like they, they want to conquer you. Uh, that's that's really not beauty. That's kind of a testosteroneized version uh, of a woman who you kind of have this need uh, to be attracted to. So maybe your your dad, you didn't have a great relationship, and it really turns into something that you never dreamed you'd be attracted to. So I just believe the pure of the heart, the deeper the meaning of the word beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, congratulations, Stephen, on the book. Also, just let listeners know there's a, a little workbook included at the back of the book. So you yeah, can right. read this book, and you can get right to work uh, starting from day one. Yeah, and our workshop, if you want information on that, it's 1-800-NEW-LIFE. We've helped a lot of men find victory here. Fantastic. Dr. Stephen Arterburn has been my guest, and his book is called Every Man's Battle, Winning the War on Sexual Temptation, One Victory at a Time. Have a nice rest of the day, Stephen. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. God bless you. All right. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Lori uh, Pollitt-Short will be my guest. We're going to kind of load up on Scripture in the last... 30 minutes. I think you're going to love this. Be right back. nice to be welcoming back to the show Lori Short. She's uh, written a book that I think we need to talk about regularly uh, because it's called 40 Verses to Ignite Your Faith. And one of the questions that kind of keeps popping up in Lori's world was uh, people would say, why do these verses that I read in the Bible fail to come true in my life? Or how can I have confidence that God is near when my experience is that God is far away? So I know there's always, um, we always want to be Understanding God's word and then knowing how does it apply to our lives, and maybe you've you, you've had friends and they've had this verse and they've told it to you and you and you go where'd that come from where where'd that verse come from like you've never heard it before? Well, Lori in her book has come up with a whole list of incredible verses that you may have not heard or know much about, and we're going to talk to her about them today. Lori, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. Yeah. Now, your book came out last year, 40 Verses to Ignite Your Faith, Surprising Insights from Unexpected Passages. I got to say, that's one of my favorite things when you come across a passage that you just didn't see coming and it hits you in a new way. Absolutely. Yeah. This this book highlights verses, but not just the verse taken out of context. It's actually the verse 
right in the passage, but it just gives you so many insights on, wait, why isn't this promise verse happening in my life? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you didn't look at the next verse, and that can give you a few more clues on how this really works out in your life. And so that's why I think this book carries so much insight for people. Yeah. Now, I would say let's just jump into an example of one of those um, verses. Okay. Uh, Well, one of my favorite little nuggets is actually found after a verse that's really pretty well known. It's one that I wrote in my journal for several years when I was in a season of just not seeing what God was doing and feeling like I was in the dark. It's Isaiah 50:10. Let him or her who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And I love that verse, but I never had actually looked at the next verse after it, which I think gives us so much insight on what to do when we're waiting and what not to do when we're waiting. And the next verse is the one that's in my book. And it says, but woe to you who light your own fires and provide your own torches. This is what you shall receive. You will lie down in torment. Now, while that's not a verse you want to share on social media, it kind of gives you some insight into the verse before it. Like, trust the Lord, wait. We always wait longer than we like, Bill. Mm -hmm. And in the wait, sometimes we get so tired. And if you're like me, I start to think, well, maybe God wants me to answer my own prayer here because it's not happening. And so... There are ways that we can try to light our own path, which is what the verse talks about, where we can just say, you know what, I'm tired of waiting for God to light the path, so I'm going to just set out and try to do it my way. We actually see an example of that in Genesis when Sarah and Abraham understandably get tired of waiting for God to deliver the child. And so she takes a look at at Hagar and thinks, okay, well, maybe God wants me to help him answer the prayer. And so, of course, she has her husband sleep with Hagar. I always like to imagine that conversation, too. You know, know, okay, I guess you want me to sleep with this beautiful maidservant. All right, (laughs) if you insist. But um, but I think what Sarah was doing, I totally understand. And I don't know if any listeners do, but it's like, gosh, God, I'm already old. And if this birth is going to happen, we better speed it up. And that can take shape in so many different areas of our lives, because I think God's always on a timeline that's different than ours. And we just get tired of waiting for him. And sometimes we can complicate our lives. And that is what Isaiah 50, 11 speaks to, um, woe to you who you, you always want to pay attention when you start a verse that way, who light your own flames and provide your own torches. In other words, when you go out and set out, it's not that God abandons you, but you certainly can make your life more complicated by trying to answer your own prayer. Mm-hmm. So there's a little nugget there that I think can really help us go, okay, wait, I'm, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust that even though it feels way too late, way too long, God's got a plan. And we saw that with Abraham and Sarah, that ultimately, though Hagar had a child, that was not the promised child that God had. And it was going to be years later that Sarah actually did have this child and made her life a little more complicated because of of the route that she took. Mm -hmm. But Lori, when you start expediting things in your life, because you assume that the timing is such that let's get this thing moving and maybe I can give God a hand here. 
I mean, we're, we're pretty conditioned in the way we live our lives to have that be almost the default response. I mean, I'll start in the morning going, okay, omelet, 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 ah, forget about it, scrambled eggs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I can't even so wait true. for the omelet. I know, I know. And then you start thinking about what God, the time that God takes. But you know what? Here's the thing, Bill. You know, timing is what makes a good story a God story. Because I'm going to be honest, I I waited a lot longer for marriage, for instance. I didn't get married till I was 49 and had a lot of heartbreak and a lot of breakups and even a broken engagement. Um, but my my wedding is a God story. Whereas if I had gotten married at the normal time and nothing bad had happened, I wouldn't be talking about it. Mm -hmm. It's not a God story unless you wait too long. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, 90 and a hundred. I mean, these, this couple was in depends and diapers at the same time. (laughs) I mean, it just literally the thought of, of a 90 year old, I mean, you know, we kind of skim over that, but a 90 year old becoming pregnant. I mean, you know, God's in that. Oh yeah. And I think that's, (laughs) That's where he shows us so much more of himself when we can wait, but it is so hard to wait sometimes. And I, I agree with you. I have such a hard time doing it. And God just is constantly showing me that lesson. Well, it seems, Lori, that God seems to do his, uh, some of his best work in, in the face of death. I mean, you've got Sarah's yeah. womb, who, and her womb was dead for sure. Uh, you've got yeah. Lazarus dead for f- four days. Um, yes. And of course, Jesus in the tomb. So uh, that's why he gets all the credit. Oh, and there are so many verses in here that talk about that, how it's when everything looks dead and gone. I mean, there's a verse from Ezekiel where God goes, now walk through this valley of bones. And, and you know, Ezekiel's already looking at the valley. He doesn't need to walk through it, but right. it's like, God, just, you know, hey, go see how dead this is. And then do you think these bones can live? You know, I mean, he's, it, it's almost like God wants us to get to that place so he can literally show us how powerful and how real he is. And when something miraculous happens after things have been dead and gone and you think nothing is ever going to happen and it's totally hopeless and there's no way, and then God does something, it changes your faith forever. And that's why I think he allows for that. And there are so many different uh, insights about that in this book with these verses. Mm-hmm. Laura, you're, you're an empathetic person. So when you are with someone who feels like they're in a, at a time of turmoil and chaos and I can't wait and, and you want to encourage them and you sympathize with their situation, how, would you, how do you best encourage somebody to be a patient person that's waiting upon the Lord when it's so hard to do? Yes. You know, there's a couple of things, and actually that's so interesting that you would say that, Bill, because I'm, I'm stewing on a new book title, um, and it's kind of like, what do, what do I do when I have no idea what God is doing? And mm-hmm. I think there are some things we can do, one being stay in community. Um, I think we, at least for me, I tend to isolate when I'm feeling like things are not happening the way I want them to. I don't want to show up places. I don't want to go be with other people, but health is in community and especially your church community, your faith community, because you can at least see God at work around you when you're not seeing him at work in your life. And it just encourages you to hold on. And I mean, the Israelites were told that over and over again, to stay in community. And that also another, um, 
thing to remember is to look back, to see how God has worked in your past and how he resolved some things or how he showed up. And if you're not keeping track of those things, I would really recommend to journal so that you can go back and say, okay, I'm not seeing what he's doing right now, but I'm going to trust. And then have some good, close friends that that know God, that are faith people that can encourage you because there's no way that we're meant to do this alone. And it can get very, very discouraging. I mean, I continue to have those seasons. I, I don't, I don't think you stop having those seasons because life can look hopeless a lot. Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting too, Lori, the default position when you start to feel that is to withdraw. Oh, and, so and, true, and you go, I'm just yeah. going to hang home tonight and, and yeah. not be around anybody. Right, right. <laughs> and that turns I into, know. you know, the whole weekend, and then it turns into, like, the better part of a month, and then the next thing you know, you've been sort of out of community for six months. Exactly. Yeah. I know. And and you you know that it's not the place to go, because when you go to community, you always feel better afterwards. It might be a huge struggle getting there, but you always feel better afterwards, and I think that's the key that he's God has made us that way to, to gain strength from each other. But it really does depend on what community you're, you're attaching yourself to as well, because obviously there's places you can go that would steer you away from your faith and say, it's all up to you. So you, you want to be sure that there are people of faith that, that can encourage you. Mm-hmm. Well, Lori, I'm never going to look at Isaiah 50, 11, the same again. I would love for you to, <laughs> to pick another one. This is great. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, one of my favorites comes from the very well-known book of Habakkuk. <laughs> I think that's a book that many of you spend lots of devotional time in. Of course. It's, it's a short book, but, you know, what I love about that book is that Habakkuk was a prophet that served at a time when Israel was not seeing anything of God and the promise that they would, they were going to see God do something. But the book actually ends with Habakkuk's declaration of faith. And I just love what he, he says. I mean, he basically just looks at his circumstances and says, even if this isn't happening, even if this isn't happening, even if this isn't happening, yet I will still hold. It's the defiant faith. And I actually tell a story in that particular one about Horatio Spafford, because that story has always touched me. Um, the one who wrote it is well with my soul. And I don't know if you know that story, but he wrote that song after he got horribly devastating news and somehow was able to, to have defiant faith. And yeah. so I kind of compare Horatio Stafford to Habakkuk. Um, but, you know, basically Habakkuk says the fig, the fig tree doesn't bud. There are no grapes on the vine. The olive crops fails. The fields produce no food. There's no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the cells yet. I will rejoice. He doesn't say, so I will rejoice. He's not faking it. Right. He's saying, I'm going to have faith. And of course, we know um, in history that is that God does come through. But I just love that the book kind of ends that way, because so often we tie it up in a neat bow. But just the fact that we have these examples in Scripture of people who are not seeing the end. They're not seeing what God is doing. And I think knowing that you're in the middle of the story you need that. Another great example is Joseph. Um, that I love that story in the Old Testament because it kind of at least a little bit shows you in real time some of the things that are happening. 
And he, his journey was so crazy after getting this amazing dream and he thought he was going to be in power. And then of course he gets sold into slavery and then he gets put in jail. And then he even has a little gleam of hope because somebody's in jail that works in Pharaoh's palace. And he's like, remember me when you get out. And then there's one little line and that's the verse that's in this book. And for two full years, Joseph sat in jail. Well, I don't know about you, but when you start thinking about that, you know, maybe for the first couple of months, you're going, okay, you know, it's just a matter of time. This is going to happen. But after a year, you're going, this isn't going to happen. Obviously, the cupbearer completely forgot about me, and I'm going to sit in jail for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. But God's timing was, at the end of those two years, Pharaoh has a dream, and then all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers, oh, my gosh, I know this guy that entered. And so within a matter of seconds, Joseph pulled out of jail. He's second in power. Everything happens. But my goodness, the route getting there was so crazy and must have looked so hopeless to him. But God had a reason for all that timing. It wouldn't have been right any other time. So that's what's so mysterious about trusting God. I mean, you really have to kind of take your eyes off of your circumstances and say, I don't really get this right now, but I'm going to see it differently when it's done. All right, Lori, let me take a little break here. Lori Short is my guest. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to the show. Always glad to talk to my friend Lori Short. The book she's written is called 40 Verses to Ignite Your Faith, Surprising Insights from Unexpected Passages. And Lori, I know there's people driving right now that can't Google the Horatio Spafford story. So just remind us again (laughs) what it is, because it's such a great story. Yes. Well, he's uh, the man. um, Let me just find it really fast. He's the man that wrote It Is Well With My Soul. Mm -hmm. And so if you just Google It Is Well With My Soul, you will see his story. Um, yeah, you don't have to really remember his name, but um, he he was a, a man that was in, you know he he was in the late 1800s. But that song became a hymn that so many Christians and churches throughout history have sung in their darkest hours because you know they don't see what God is doing, and just knowing the story behind it, I think, makes it that much more powerful. And that's what reminds me of Habakkuk. It's like, even when all these things are happening, I'm still going to rejoice because I know my God is good. And that kind of faith is the faith that inspires people, mm-hmm. you know, because people don't really, people don't really care when everything's going great in your life and you're, you know, Hey, things are going great. And I follow Jesus. Well, good for you. But you know, when things are falling apart and you're going, but I'm still, I'm still trusting. That's when people lean in, they go, okay, this person has something there. There's something deeper here. Um, it's not just about Santa Claus, God. Now mm-hmm. it's about a God that you're following that you obviously believe is real. So, and now that we're talking about this, I think the next verse to go to in your book, 40 verses to ignite your faith might be number 39, which is Philippians one twelve, trusting the greater plan. Oh yes. Oh, I love that verse. And you know, by the way, Bill, pe- I've had a couple, um, comments it's like what you know why why did you do 30 old testament and 10 new testament instead of 2020 and i said you know the answer is is that people are way more familiar with 
New Testament than they are old. There's so many nuggets in the Old Testament. But the ones I chose in the New Testament, I think, are so encouraging um, for what they show us. And that this is one of them. And it's it's really um, Paul's story, how he's in jail and he says, I'm going to read it right out of my book. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, if you read that verse in context, and by the way, Bill, that's a side note. All these verses that you study in this book are in the context. It's not just grabbing them out of context and trying to get the truth. It's actually a study of the verse in the context of the passage. But Paul's in jail, and he had this incredible ministry, and now he's in jail. And the only person that's with him is, you know, presumably the jailer. And now he's saying, you know, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And he's, he's thinking about, okay, because I'm in jail, people are out there preaching, um, you know, and they're doing the work. And so that, that is what Paul saw about his story. But what I like to think about is that Paul then turned around and said, okay, these are my circumstances. I can't go to the people anymore, so I am going to write some letters. I'm just going to sit in jail and write some letters to encourage my brothers and sisters. And that was what was on his mind. I'm just going to encourage my brothers and sisters. But what he could not have possibly known is that the letters that he was writing in prison would become part of the New Testament. And be the reason why so many people came to faith. And I don't think, Bill, if he had not been sent to jail, he would have had time to write letters because he was very busy in his ministry. And so you start thinking about God's sovereignty in that little verse of, you know, little does Paul even know what he's saying when he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Are you kidding me? Yes, you being in jail and writing these letters and that becoming part of the Bible and the Bible and the power that the Bible has had to bring people to Jesus. I mean, you just start thinking about that. It kind of blows your mind. So I think what we see is so different than what God sees about our story. And I, I just think if we could, if we can just trust him that even when it seems completely wrong to us, somehow God has a plan in what's happening. Mm-hmm. And Lori, another passage uh, from your book, 40 Verses to Ignite Your Faith, and it's one that I'm always fascinated with because it is the shortest uh, verse in Scripture, John 11:35. Jesus wept. Yes. I'm always curious as to hear what Bible teachers uh, make of that passage. So I'd love to hear your take on it. Well, besides the fact that it's probably the verse you should memorize if you're any kind of Scripture memorization program. Of course, program, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it should be the number one, one verse you but, go to. Uh, I was actually going to bring this up earlier on. Uh, I think that what this verse shows is where God is in our suffering, if I could be so bold to say that. Mm-hmm. I think so many people ask that question, where is God in my suffering? Why is God allowing this to happen? And what I love about this story and where this verse comes from is, of course, Jesus purposefully stays away from his friend Lazarus when he's sick, when he could have gone and healed him. Mm -hmm. He stays away, waits for him to die because his plan is a resurrection. It's not a healing, but nobody knows that. And so they just think their friend, you know, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were Jesus's best friends. And they just think that he's not coming. He's not showing up. And I just think of how many times we're in that same 
mode of thinking, God, is not, where are you? Why aren't you showing up right now? It's just too late now. And I think because God works on a scope of eternity, and that's really what this passage shows, because he goes and he knows what he's going to do. I mean, he, he, he says what he's going to do in the passage to his disciples. This will not end in death. Well, they don't know. And so when he sees his friends crying, he cries. And there's something so beautiful about that, that Jesus wept because of their tears. So you know that if you're weeping and you're in pain, that God is weeping with you. We have a weeping God. And you also know that it's not the end of the story because on the other side is eternity. And I think about Lazarus getting called out of the tomb sometimes going, darn, (laughs) 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 now I have to die twice, you know, not really, but I don't know. But it's just crazy to think about that story in so many different ways. I think it gives us huge clues into our faith. And one of the questions I ask myself Am I willing to step into somebody else's uncomfortableness? Because uh, Jesus yeah. showed up and he knew what he was going to do. And he could have been very opposite emotionally, but he shows up and steps into their discomfort with them. That's right. There's so much to That's learn right. from that, Lori. Oh, so much, Bill. And I'm terrible at it sometimes. You know, I just think about, especially when I want the person to feel better. I think that's so often what we, we go into something thinking, well, you just want to say something encouraging that's going to make them feel better. But sometimes, as we learn from the book of Job, the best thing to do is just sit and be with somebody. You don't have to have the answers. And, and that, I mean, Jesus knew what he was going to do, and yet he took the time to sit and weep. And I love that. There's so much to learn from those two words, Jesus wept, and to think that that is what he was able to do, willing to do, and what he did. That's, a, that's absolutely right. Now, yeah. I, I just love that. Well, Lori, yeah. I think I could chat with you all day, but I think we're kind of getting out of time. Well, I'd love to come to Minneapolis, so let's make it work. I'll come out there sometime. I will work on that full time. <laughs> that no. would be great. That would be great. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. It, was, it was great to chat with you, Bill. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You bet. Lori Short has been my guest. Her verse or book is called 40 Verses to Ignite Your Faith, Surprising Insights from Unexpected Passages. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening and being with us today. Just I love you and I I love that you support and listen to Faith Radio. As you lay your head on the pillow tonight, just know that God's working out his great plan in your life. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow.